Good evening, comrades and friends. I hope you're safe and well. And thank you for turn, tuning in to this Socialist Workers' Party broadcast on the revolutionary ideas of Angela Davis. Clearly, we're living in extraordinary times. For months, a global pandemic has ripped through our communities, destroying lives and livelihoods and forcing us to live apart from each other. There's never been a more important time to campaign, to protest and to demand change. And yet it's been very hard, if not impossible, to do so in circumstances where we're not able to meet in mass numbers, to gather, to congregate, to protest, to organize. But then, all of a sudden, we've seen the eruption of Black Lives Matter protests right across the globe in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd by a police officer in Minneapolis. In the United States itself, the protests have been more widespread and more diverse even than those that erupted and rocked the state in the aftermath of the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King in April 1968. The nature and scale of those uprisings has raised a whole number of debates and discussions, and at the heart of them is a central question. How can we ensure that this episode becomes a catalyst for radical and lasting change? In seeking to address that question, it's inevitable that we look back to the struggles of the past, including those very events of 1968, in order to learn from them. The subject of this evening's broadcast is an iconic figure who was involved in the struggles of that era and remains deeply committed today. It's fitting, therefore, that we're considering the revolutionary ideas of Angela Davis. Here to discuss her with me and to discuss what her ideas and her legacy can offer to the burgeoning Black Lives Matter movement are three brilliant activists who I've had the pleasure of working with. Bila Hassan is a member of the Darkest Howe Legacy Collective and a former editor of Race Today. Esme Chunara is a health worker, socialist and co-author alongside me of Say It Loud, Marxism and the Fight Against Racism. Last but by no means least is Neymar Omar, a London-based activist who's written a series of articles on Angela Davis for Socialist Review magazine. Now, I know that there are already hundreds of people who have tuned into this broadcast, but please continue to share it on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or whatever social media platform you're using, because we want more people to tune in. We want more people to hear and contribute to this important debate and discussion. And please also send in your questions. Let's begin. And let me begin by turning to you, Neymar. And I suppose the obvious question to start with is, who is Angela Davis and how did she first emerge on the political scene? Oh, yeah, so let me from the beginning. Um, Angela Davis was born on the 26th of January 1944. She was raised on Central Street, Birmingham, Alabama. This area in the 1950s was marked by racist bombings of houses in attempts to drive out the working, the middle class family, uh, black families. And due to the frequency of the bombings, the area was also known as Dynamite Hill. The neighborhood was nicknamed Bombingham, and Martin Luther King once described it, Birmingham as probably one of the most thoroughly segregated. Um, cities in the state. As a child, Angela was fully aware of the realities of growing up in a southern state, where the Jim Crow law entrenched the segregation from following the ending of slavery. As a black kid, you had to learn your place in society, namely that of certain places like bus stops, shops, and so forth that were labelled colour. Years later, while studying abroad, um, her home, Birmingham, became the location for a key turning point in the civil rights movement. The KKK bombing of the 16th Baptist Church, um, where four young girls between the age of 11 and 14 were killed by a blast. One of them was a close friend by um, Angela. Of, one of them was a close friend of Angela Davis's younger sister. Um, they, her childhood was marked and defined by racism, violence and fear. 
and resistance. Both of her parents were activists in the modern and modest civil rights group, the National Association for Advancement of Colour People, and they received um, death threats. Um, Angela also talks in her autobiography about um, going on a number of protests with her mum. While attending a private school in New York, um, where she gained her scholarship, uh, during one of her history classes, Angela first came to the understanding of the real idea of socialism. Her eyes was opened up to a whole new world. She was fascinated up the class by reading the Communist Manifesto. She said it hit her like a bolt of brilliant as she read it again and again and finding in it many of the answers that seemed so unanswerable um, and which had plagued her for so many years. And later on she became a member of the Communist Party and active in the Black Panthers Party chapter um, in California. Her membership was a her membership um, became a point of target for Ronald Reagan, who at the time was the mayor of California. With the help of the university senior management, they embarked on a witch hunt against Angela while she was there as an acting assistant professor at the University of California. They tried to fire her for her membership on the basis of her membership, but the judge dismissed this case. Um, but this was it before 1,500 students attended her lecture out of solidarity. But it didn't stop there. They tried again to get her sacked this time because of the language Angela Davis used um, in her lectures, repeatedly referring to police as pigs, which I'm not going to, like, I fully support, but hey-ho. Um, they were successful in getting her sacked. Outside of academia, Angela was an activist with the local community and the wider movement. She was a strong supporter of free prison inmates of, of the Soledad prison, also known as the brothers, um, who had tried to, who were accused of the killing of a police guard, one of which was George Jackson, a leading member of the Black um, Angela became um, implicated in the to free George Jackson um, when she was, when she proved to had provided some of the weapons used by George, his brother. Um, Jonathan and two Black Panther members um, in a raid of a courthouse in California on the August 1970. The raid ended in a fire um, gunfire gunfight with the police, in which led to where in which the preceding judge was killed alongside Jonathan and two other Panther members who were there. Angela went on the run, and in her absence, uh, Judge Peter Smith uh, charged her with aggravated kidnapping a first degree murder in the death of the judge um, and sent out an arrest warrant um, for her arrest. Little was spoken about the killing of the three Panthers, which is not a surprise. Um, four days after the shooting, Angela Davis was on the FBI's most wanted list and on the 13th of October she was captured by the FBI in New York City. The US president at that time um, Richard Nixon congratulated the FBI on capturing one of the deadliest terrorists, Angela Davis. And on the 5th of January, 1970, she appeared at the Supreme Court where she declared herself as innocent. She spent 16 months on remand and 15 of them in solitude confinement, separated from the other prison inmates at the Women's Detention Center. I think it's quite amazing if you read her autobiography, the extent and the level in which the police, the prison authorities go to in order to separate Angela from mm -hmm. the other inmates, exposing the level of the fear they had about her ability to mobilize and raise conscience across the prison. Her imprisonment led to um, organizations for her release, not only in the US, but across the world. One of my favorite images, I think, which is going to pop up is of women in Somalia demonstrating for her release. And we also heard after Aretha Franklin's death, she, Aretha Franklin had offered to pay her bill while she was uh, during her trial. John Lennon and Yoko Ono contributed a song called Angela. Um, and there were several other artists and musicians who were a part of this movement, really reflecting the powerful, how powerful the movement was and how much she was taking place on the ground. And on the 4th of June, 1972, after 13 hours of deliberation, an all-white jury returned to deliver the verdict of not guilty. Although the guns 
that were using it or were under her name, the judge said it was significant to establish her role in the plot to release George Jackson. And sometimes I think people question what it was about Angela Davis. And at that time, it wasn't her that people gather around to make sure there was such a campaign to release her. I think you have to remember her arrest took place only a year and a half after the Martin Luther King Jr. had been assassinated, where there was um, immense riots across the US. And her arrest also occurred when the state was going on an all-out persecution of the Black Panthers movement who she was closely associated with. But I think that, in a sum up, um, I think that's the best I could do to sum up the life of Angela Davis at this minute. Well, it, it, you've done it extremely well. You've done an extraordinary and dramatic early life. Leela, can I just turn... Because you would, of course, have been a very young woman in the, the late 60s and early 70s. Were you aware of Angela Davis? And if so, what impact did she have on you at that time? So very aware of Angela Davis. I was in a black power organisation who had close links with the Panthers in America and understood the international liberation struggle, which we were all part of. And for us, George Jackson's book, Soledad Brother, was one of the most important books that we had of the time. There were several books which, if you were in a Black Power organisation, you were mandated to read. And Soledad Brother was one of them. And so when um, George Jackson was murdered, and um, we've just heard how Angela's involvement with George, with George Jackson and the attempt to free him and, and what happened. Um, we had mass demonstrations here. And of course, when Angela was then arrested and went on the run, we were part of the international campaign, which was completely worldwide to get Angela Davis freed. So she's part of the kind of DNA of the, of the international black movement and certainly of the black power movement in England. Something that we'll discuss later on as well. Thanks very much for that, Leela. Sisters and brothers, we already have over 450 people watching, which is fantastic, but we want to reach even more people. So please do carry on sharing it on your social media platforms. We're discussing here today Angela Davis's ideas on race, class and revolution. Why just rely upon us? Let's hear what the woman herself had to say on that very question. The reason I am a communist is because I feel that only through a total revolution which is going to overthrow the capitalist control of the economy, which will seize the wealth from all of the giant corporations that exploit and control the lives of all working people, but particularly black people. And see, I feel that the reason why racism is so blatant and has, and has uh, been a part of the history of black people from the time we were first kidnapped from the shores of Africa is because it has helped those capitalists uh, gain more and more profit. And if you look at any factory, any plant, who does the worst jobs? Who gets, pays, who gets paid uh, uh, the uh, smallest salaries? It's black people. So racism serves as a, as a buttress, as an, a justification for super-exploitation. And I feel that if we're going to talk about to the total liberation of black people, we first have to liberate ourselves from the material conditions of our oppression. And the material conditions of our oppression are no jobs, are bad jobs, unemployment, bad housing, bad medical care, and all of the kinds of things that will be eradicated under socialism. As I said before, racism, in terms of its uh, uh, material base, means super-exploitation economically. It means that, that, that uh, black people get the worst uh, of the entire lot economically. It also means that the capitalist, the boss, is able to divide um, black workers from white workers. Why? Because he tells, he tells the white worker that his problem is not 
those who control his lives, those who take his labor and turn it into profit for themselves. But his problem is, is uh, uh, the black man who's trying to get his job. And so racism is operated as a divisive force to prevent the emergence of a, of, of a real uh, revolution in this country. So, so that's a clip from the early 1970s, I think. But Angela Davis is still very much alive and still very active today. Indeed, she spoke last year here in Britain at the Women of the World Conference in London, which I think I'm right in saying that all three of you, Leela, Esme and Neymar, were at. Esme, let me turn to you now and ask you this. What do you make of her more recent ideas and activity? Thank you, Brian. Well, I think it's right that we often concentrate on Angela Davis as a historical figure um, and look at what she said and what she wrote and what she did in the 60s and 70s. It was, after all, um, a high point in the struggle against the US states led by black people, a very militant struggle and part of a tremendous global rebellion that was happening at that time. And I think it's an era that carries strategic lessons for us today that we're going to discuss throughout this meeting. However, as you say, Angela Davis is, of course, a living, breathing activist and scholar today, and one who still describes herself um, as a revolutionary. And just two days ago, I think we have a picture here, Angela Davis came out of her lockdown, out of the coronavirus lockdown, risking her own health. She's now um, 76 with her own health problems, to join striking dock workers in Oakland, California in celebrating their brilliant decision to take strike action in support of Black Lives Matter on the day that the US officially marks the anniversary of the end of slavery in America. So she's very much an activist. Her ideas have evolved over recent decades um, and actually in um, some ways she's more critical now of some of the early things that she wrote. Um, but she has maintained a remarkable commitment to class politics and to internationalism. And you're right, we all saw her speak last year, which was an absolute uh, privilege and a pleasure. And when I saw her speak, one example that really stuck with me is there was a moment in the discussion um, where she talked about the increasing numbers of women that you now see in the boardrooms of capitalism or the prison industrial complex, as she sometimes talks about it. And there was a section of the audience who clearly saw this as something to applaud and did applaud, to which Angela David made it absolutely clear that she does not see this as a measure of liberation when some people are in the boardrooms, but life for the majority of people is unchanged or in fact gets worse. And in recent years, Angela Davis has also been very vocal in support of the Palestinians, even under the ideological pressure that support for the Palestinians has come under, as we know, in the global struggle. And she's drawn out some very important parallels between the repression of Palestinians and the way that black people are treated by the state um, in the US. Uh, one of the things that she's probably most famously known for today and actually going back over the decades is her consistent campaigning around prisons and in particular um, as an abolitionist, a prison abolitionist. And I know that we're going to talk about that later um, in this discussion. I think maybe another area that maybe she's less well known for is her consistent campaigning for trans rights, in particular for the inclusion of trans women in all campaigns for women's rights, which I think draws on a long critique that Angela has developed over the question of which women get to set the agenda or to be represented by the women's movement and how you create a politics that is more inclusive of all women, including the rights of trans women. But I think really in conclusion, it's important to remember that she is still a great critic of capitalism. And I read an interview that she did I think a couple of weeks ago, just earlier this month, talking about Black Lives Matter, where she argued that it's a mistake to assume that we can combat racism by leaving capitalism in place. So she's still got many lessons today, I think, for the movement going forwards. Yeah, I missed out on a ticket for that conference. And uh, I remember speaking to you and my partner who managed to get a ticket afterwards, and I was extremely and remain extremely envious of you for that. Esme, thank you very much for those perspectives. And I suppose, 
moving on, a kind of linked theme when you talk about inclusivity and who gets to be involved. A primary feature of Angela's work has been a focus on women and the role of women in struggle. I mean, perhaps her most famous book is called Women, Race and Class, isn't it? Sadly, we don't have time to look at that book in depth in this meeting. But let me just ask this. What, and I'll turn to you, Leela, first. What are the key things that stand out for you, either about the book or about Angela's general perspective? So I think the quote on the back of the book, um, black women were equal to their men in the oppression they suffered. They were their men's social equals within the slave community, and they resisted slavery with a passion equal to their men's. So I was active in the black movement and then later in Race Today. And one of the things I can say about the black movement for social change that I've been involved in, um, and I think it goes right back to the anti from slavery, which she identifies in this book, but the anti-colonial movement, the civil rights movement, um, and black power right through now to the Black Lives Lives Matters movement is that women have been are central to this, these movements and at times have led are leading it and do lead these movements and as it, as it says in the book this role is not always acknowledged or recorded but the thing that touched me most about this book is um, being you know quite you know getting on in, in years now is when I first joined the black movement there was a lot of talk about a woman called Claudia Jones and Claudia Jones was a West Indian who had been expelled from the United States because of her left-wing and communist activity. And in, in the book, um, Angela devotes quite a section to Claudia, which was really lovely to see. And Claudia says, black women's leadership, as, jo as Jones points out, had always been indispensable to the people's fight for freedom. Seldom mentioned in orthodox histories, for example, was the fact that the sharecropper strikes of the 1930s was sparked, was sparked by Negro women. And that's, that's something which I think um, as we go along and as this current history is recorded, and even our history, which we will come to in, in the work that, that we've been doing in, in the um, legacy group of which I'm a member, it is important to let the people themselves speak about their own experiences and their own history and what leads them into struggle and what their desires are for change. Because sometimes in, in all of the, the movement and the, the, loud, the kind of um, people who are the spokespeople for the movement, you forget that fundamentally a lot of people are there because they want to change something. And I think what Angela always does and did in that well lecture of which I was present is always remind us that the movement for change really has to be led from the people from below. And even those who have positions and status and are able to make change, we have to be mindful that it's the people at the bottom whose lives really need to alter and change. And that's what we should put our activism at the service of. Thank you, Leela. And of course, Claudia Jones is one of those brilliant creative activists who was responsible for pioneering the Notting Hill Carnival, wasn't she? Yeah. And the West Indian Gazette, which yeah. uh, the, one of the first newspapers in Britain yeah, for, the, for the black community. Yeah, absolutely. Esme, let me turn to you. And uh, is there anything that you'd like to add to what Leela's already said? Yeah, I'm going to flash my copy. I really, firstly, I really recommend that people read this book for themselves. It is, I think, one of the books that had the biggest impact on me as a young mixed race woman starting to become a political activist and thinking about how we can find a sort of politics that could address some of my concerns within a bigger framework and with a, a really far-reaching analysis of how women's oppression and racism are linked and how they're situated under capitalism. And I think Leela is quite right to raise the question of the often hidden history of women's roles in many of the key struggles, including all of the struggles that there have been um, against racism. And I think in many ways, for some of us, that's why Angela Davis has become such an icon. You know, you think about the imagery of a lot of the struggles um, against racism at that time. And you think about very powerful images, often of male Black Panthers or of Malcolm X, but actually Angela Davis remains a visual reminder of the important role that women played at every point in that struggle. And in Women, Race and Class, I, I love the stuff about Claudia Jones, but I also love the fact that there are so many other figures in there that, that are maybe less well known that she wants people to read about and she wants people to hear this hidden history of resistance by key women, both black and white actually, um, who have fought against slavery, 
who fought against lynching, against segregation, who've organized among the labor movement. Um, there's a whole hidden history that she brings out there. But also the book contains much more. And one of the things I think it really draws out is the danger of seeing different struggles against oppression in competition with each other or allowing your struggle to become incorporated into the system as happened to some elements in the women's movement that she traces. I think it really, for me, underlines the importance of locating struggles for liberation for black people, for women and our other liberation struggles within a wider framework of capitalism. But it's a book I love and it's a book that I keep going back to. Absolutely. Neymar. What, if anything, either about the book or the general perspectives of Angela particularly stands out for you? Um, yeah, I just want to say one thing, Brian. I've seen her twice just to rub it in. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I think the book is absolutely brilliant. I've always loved reading it. Um, what it really, truly, when I read it, I learned so much. It highlights the relationship between the early and the Black Liberation Movement in the States, um, with the self-redress movement growing out of the abolishment of slavery and the struggle of the movement for abolishment of slavery, a large amount of work and middle-class women um, were part of this movement and felt in order for their politics to be really heard and taken seriously, they needed to gain the right to vote. Like many movements, there was different views on the question of how to achieve them, and some became... And accepting or complicit of racist ideas in a process for several reasons to um, grow the movement by accepting racist views from women from the South and to gain support of ruling class men as tensions were growing between the self adjust movement for their struggle to gain the vote for white women and, and also the black liberation movement, which was also fighting to gain the vote for black men. But if, as Esme said, it, became a competition between campaigns. And I think what's quite disheartening about this is that the voices of black women was drowned out. And this book in detail goes through their reality and struggle and their fight, as Esme also said. But I think it's one of, it's been described as one of the earliest book um, to describe intersectionality, even though it's written before the term was coined. And it, there were several books um, about the work the experience of black women written before. But I think what's quite clear that we always have to remember when Angela Davis is talking about intersectionality, she's talking about intersectionality of struggle and not identity. She talks about um, whether that be between Palestine and demonstrators from Ferguson. Um, so yeah, I think it's quite clear. The book is an absolutely amazing book and I think everyone should really truly get a copy because it highlights so much of the um, history of the states and the movement and involvement of black women in those struggles. So, yeah. Thanks very much. Let me turn back to you now, Leela. And I'm going to ask you this. The Race Today Collective was active from, I think I'm right in saying, from 1974 to about 1988. Mm -hmm. yep. And it produced not only the, the journal Race Today, which was first of all edited by Darkus Howe, mm -hmm. and then you yourself took over as editor in 1985. The Darkus Howe Legacy Collective has just published two books, Here Today, Here to State, the Race Today Anthology, and From Bobby to Babylon, which is a reprint of a book that Darkus first wrote, I think I'm right in saying in 1988. Why have you decided to publish these books and what do you think that they can offer to the movements of today? Okay, so first of all, the anthology Here to Stay, Here to Fight, which is a collection of articles from Race Today, which cover covers all aspects that, of the issues that Race Today covered, from politics, to economics, to art, to culture, to huge campaigns that we fought against the police. But this was primarily brought published as a project to honour Darkus's legacy and also to point out the political contribution of the Race Today Collective. And I think in, in speaking to people, one of the things that strikes me is that it, it's the first time that the black radicalism of, in Britain in the 70s and 80s has been brought to light in a publication of, of this size. 
So that that was why one of the reasons, the reason, the main reasons to bring it out was. The other thing is it gives this generation and the generation just before the opportunity to hear the voices of the black community at that time. Race Today was brought up by a group of young activists. Um, the youngest was 18, the oldest 30. We were Asian, African and West Indians. We were based in Brixton deliberately because we wanted to be based in the heart of the grassroots movement. Um, and so what this anthology does, it, it records and analyzes these movements, both on the shop floor and in the community, and has a huge section about culture and arts, because for us that was very important. And it was called by Linton Johnson, the creation for liberation. I don't think you'll find anywhere else, uh, except in this anthology, that kind of record of radical black politics, art and culture in any one place. So that's why it's important. I think um, one of the major interventions that Race Today had throughout its, its 14 year history of campaigning was on the treatment of the black communities by the police. And Darkus's authored book on Bobby to Babylon gives the history right back from the 60s when we first came to this country, having been defeated by the, in the colonial movement to um, under the West Indian Standing Conference when, when nigger hunting in England, as was coined by the West Indian Standing Conference, was happening right through to the successful campaigns against this to at the end of Race Today's life, every time we we met the police, we were able to score a victory. Darkus himself was arrested six times and five of those times he was successful in, in being found not guilty. And the one time when he was found guilty, he was sent to jail and we launched a su successful campaign and got him out within a week. So what Bobby to Babylon does, I think, and both both books really do, is they offer insights and analysis into struggles that aren't recorded anywhere else. They also offer a really radical perspective. I mean, in Race Today, we said we were radical and revolutionary. And we offer the perspective on these struggles. And I think what they show primarily is what a movement can change can do. And above all, it shows what is possible. Because when Darkus and Farouk and people came to this country and saw the sign, no dogs, um, no Irish, um, no blacks, to the time when now, when you see daily confrontations with people standing up for their rights on the streets of Britain, if the police try to harass them, Race Today enables you to see that in a kind of linear way and to see how, how a movement can grow stronger and stronger and really be an effective tool for change. I think, Leila, you know, precisely at a time when the question of police brutality is right at the top of the agenda, precisely because of what happened to George Floyd, the, the reprint of From Bobby to Babylon couldn't be more timely. And it really is a privilege that you allowed me the opportunity to write an introduction to it, to, to put it into the current perspective. And I think it will play an invaluable role in helping the movements today. And I, I look forward to continuing to work with you and, and, you know, continuing to see more and more from the race today, the Darkest Hell Legacy Collective that can help to enrich the new movements of today. So thank you very much for that. Moving on, sisters and brothers, an inevitable question that comes out of the discussions about groups like the Black Panthers and about Angela Davis, and you heard what Neymar had to say about the circumstances in which he first burst onto the political scene, an inevitable question is the question of violence. She was, of course, as you've heard, imprisoned herself on very serious charges, conspiracy to murder. Today, in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, we've seen the burning of buildings, the tearing down of statues, and apparently looting, we're told. What Angela had to say about this back in 1972 is really revealing, and I think absolutely relevant to the debates that we're having today. So let's have a look and a listen to what Angela Davis herself had to say about the question of violence. Uh, and time in, and then you ask me, you know, whether I approve of violence. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, whether I approve of guns. I grew up in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, some very, very good friends of mine were killed by bombs, bombs that were planted by racists. Uh, 
I remember it for, from the time I was very small. I remember the sounds of bombs exploding across the street, our house shaking. I remember my father having to have guns at his disposal at all times because of the fact that at any moment uh, uh, someone we, we might expect to be attacked. The man who was at that time in con complete control of the city government, his name was Bull Connor, uh, would often get on the radio and make statements like uh, 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 niggas have moved into a white neighborhood, uh, we better expect some bloodshed tonight. And sure enough, there would be bloodshed. Uh, after the four young girls who were, who lived very, who lived, one of them lived uh, next door to me. Um, I was very good friends with the sister of, of another one. My, f my sister was very good friends with all three of them. My mother taught one of them in her class. My mother, in fact, when the bombing occurred, one of the mothers of uh, one of the young girls called my mother and said, uh, can you take me down to the church to pick up uh, Carol? I, you know, we heard about the bombing, and I, and I don't have my car. And they went down, and what did they find? They found limbs and heads strewn all over the place. And then after that, uh, in my neighborhood, all of the men organized themselves into an armed patrol. They had to take their guns and patrol our community every night because they did not want that to happen again. I mean, that's why when someone asked me about violence, uh, I just, uh, I just find it incredible, it, because it, what it means is that the person who's asking that question has absolutely no idea what black people have gone through, what black people have experienced in this country since the time the first black person was kidnapped from the shores of Africa. Folks, I hope you don't think that I know nothing about what black people have gone through. Esme, let me turn to you. Is uh, watching that clip, an extraordinary clip and a fantastic interview, is there anything that you want to add to that? Yeah, I agree with you. I think it is a fantastic um, clip, which throws the whole question back about where violence comes from in society. Although I actually think one of the things that really strikes me about the movement today is that for whatever accusations are shown at it, it is actually remarkably non-violent, particularly when you compare it to the force of repression that protesters have faced on the streets of the US and elsewhere. You think about the pushing over of 75-year-old protesters in the street by the police. You think about the tear gas, the rubber bullets, the brutality that we've seen um, the shooting of journalists, the arresting of journalists. I mean, we, you know, I think the um, the movement itself has remained remarkably nonviolent in response to that, partly because its strategy is to build mass resistance. But I think the point about Angela Davis's um, speech there is she's making a much broader point about where violence comes from and the difference between the violence of the oppressed and that of the oppressor. And I think when I was watching it it really brought to mind um, some of Marx's method because Marx's method is about looking beyond the immediate events and the surface appearances of things to try to understand the underlying processes that drive them. And it really brought to mind in particular Marx's support for um, Indian resistance to empire and colonialism. And Marx actually was vocal in his support for even the most violent of Indian rebellions. In 1857, when he defended a particularly violent attack by Indian troops on British forces, he wrote, there is something in human history like retribution, and it is a rule of historical retribution that its instrument be forged not by the offended, but by the offender himself. And I think that pointing out where the roots of violence lie and the difference in the violence of the oppressed and the oppressor, I think is very important to orientate in our movement and to not being offset by some of these arguments and debates that are thrown at us. Mm -hmm. That's great, thank you very much. 
Sisters and brothers, we have over 500 people tuned into the broadcast, which is fantastic. But please do carry on sharing it with your friends on social media because we want even more people to tune in and to listen to what has already been an absolutely fabulous and fascinating debate and discussion. Let's move on. And I want to turn to you now, Neymar. And I want, to, I want us to consider this. The Black Lives Matter uprisings have raised a number of demands, particularly around the police, police racism, and the wider criminal justice system. One of the things that we're hearing in the last few days is this debate about defunding the police and exactly what that means. It seems to mean different things to different people. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Angela Davis is best known for is her consistent demand to abolish prisons. Could you tell us a bit more about that and, and why you think that that's relevant to us today? Yeah, um, I think it's absolutely amazing the discussion that's happening. You can see the development of the movement, how struggle really ch um, challenges people's view of the world and raises consciousness. I think um, Angela says in one of her interviews, I've read quite a lot, but one of them, she talks about how when people used to speak about the um, abolishing these institutions back in the 1970s, they were treated as if they were out of their mind. And I think now people are really starting to question the purpose of the police and who are they meant to protect? Is it us or the ruling class? And I think people are beginning to see it is for what it is. See it, it is, for what it is. Um, and I think, as Lenin said, um, in State of Revolution, it's a body of armed men, ones that use violence to keep down any revolt against the system, whether that takes in the form of strikes, protests, or rights, and so on. We live in a society that is shaped by struggle between the working and the ruling class. And in struggle, the state is not, it's not a neutral force. It's a tool that um, used in the hands of the ruling class to rule society. And I think in this movement, of course, there are other questions being raised besides the police, but also around the justice system and the police system. It's absolutely amazing. Like, even though she's still alive, it's ridiculous how some people still water down her politics and say she wants to reform the prison system, even though she's constantly very clear that she wants to abolish it. And she advocates that we need to focus on why and how these people have found themselves in trouble, calling for a change in the education system, dealing with poverty and social problems in the, that these communities face. So whilst arguing for a better means of solving these problems than simply imprisoning people, especially in a system that disproportionately imprisons black and Hispanic men, and one that does not solve the problem, but simply hides individuals behind locked doors and hides the problems of society from society. So, yeah. Thanks very much, Neymar. Loads of comments coming in. Joshua Brown says, capitalism is violence on a global industrial scale, violence against black people, the poor, the environment, and all our collective future. Lucy says, Angela's absolutely right. The class of people in this country who tell us all lives matter seem obliv oblivious to the fact that their love of the economy has killed 60,000 of us so far. So uh, absolutely uh, fantastic discussion, fantastic contributions coming in from all of you. But as I say, please do carry on sharing it. We want even more people to come and be part of this debate. Let me turn back to you, Esme, and ask you this. There are, there are many debates in the current movement about how to, how to build unity, who should be involved. And in particular, there is a, a real discussion about what role, if any, white people can play. We keep hearing, for example, questions about so-called white privilege being raised and so on. And of course, those aren't new debates. But I wonder, what can we learn from Angela Davis about these particular questions? Well, I think if you look back to the pictures of the campaign that Naima talked about at the beginning to free Angela Davis, um, and that Leela talked about the global impact of that, um, you actually, one of the things that really strikes you looking at some of those images is how international and how 
multiracial that struggle was. And I think if you look at the pictures today of the Black Lives Matter movement and what a joy it is to look at those pictures, again, you're struck by how mixed and how inclusive and how varied those movements really are. But like you say, Brian, within all of that, there is also a debate ongoing about what the role of white people should be. Um, and the ideas that you mentioned around white privilege, I think are very current and often become a kind of background common sense in the movement. And I do think we should acknowledge that sometimes for some people, these ideas can actually be the beginning of wisdom, especially for many white people. I think it is good that people think about and challenge attitudes, behaviours, things that they may have taken for granted and try and understand what the reality of racism is and how people are affected by that. And I do think also for those that face racism, this kind of view can also make sense because for most of us, for most of the time, we don't experience racism kind of at the hands of some abstract capitalist system. We experience racism from white people or from white people who are, in, who are our managers or in charge of us or, or in power. So this can kind of make sense to us, but I think there are two main problems of approaching racism through the prism of right, white privilege. And I think Angela Davis has quite a lot to say about this. I think the first problem is that it naturalizes racism. It kind of sees racism lodged as a in the unconscious biases of, of white people. Um, it's a very ahistoric understanding of racism. It ignores the roots of racism in slavery, for example, or it ignores how racism can change and target new groups. We've seen this with COVID and the the new rise of racism against Chinese people. It, it even ignores really how racism rises and falls and can be driven back at times by um, an anti-racist movement. And the emphasis on privilege can also, I think, direct the focus towards individual relationships and attitudes and point us sometimes away from the way in which racism is structured into all the institutions of capitalism. And I think the second big problem with the kind of white privilege approach to racism is that it ignores questions of class because it rests on an idea that all white people are complicit in racism in some way because in some way all white people supposedly benefit from racism. Now I think this is a point that we've already seen eloquently challenged by Angela Davis in the earlier clip where she argued about the fact that racism is in fact used to divide and rule for the benefit of our rulers. And actually there is a very long history that we haven't got time to talk about now of radical white workers being part of the fight against empire and against racism. But it's really striking if you, if you read, um, for example, Angela Davis's autobiography, her real clarity on some of these points. And there's a bit that I love in her autobiography where in 1967, she came to London to attend a slightly strange conference on the dialectics of liberation with speakers that included Stokely Carmichael and Herbert Marcuse and others. But she also spent quite a lot of time meeting some of the activists from the Black Caribbean communities in London. And she writes this about the British movement and her experience um, here. She writes, as in the US, there was a natural inclination to identify the enemy as the white man Natural, because the great majority of white people, both in the US and England, have been carriers of the racism, which in reality benefits only a small number of them, the capitalists. Our people tended to see them as villains and not the institutional forms of racism. And she goes on to say, when white people are indiscriminately viewed as the enemy, it is virtually impossible to develop a political solution. So I think what we have to take from that is multiracial unity is possible. Well, we see it on our streets, don't we? But it's also essential. It's essential for an effective struggle against an enemy as big as global capitalism. But building that unity is not automatic. And it's only possible if we recognise the realities and the inequities of racism and we then fight together collectively to challenge them. Yeah, I was... I was listening in to a seminar, actually, on Thursday, I think it was, Esme, where it was a King's College seminar where they brought together activists from right across the world. 
And there were a couple of American academics who were around at the time of the 60s, and they were saying that, if you know, for them, the kind of protest that they were on, if white people showed up, they were really rather afraid because they assumed that those people had turned mm -hmm. out to attack them. But what we're seeing now in literally hundreds and hundreds of towns and cities right across America is something dramatically different. People of all different backgrounds and ethnicities turning up and it really does provide a, an opportunity for something radically different and, and, and more successful. I think it, it's amazing to see what's going on at the moment. Let's move on and let's come, I suppose, to the really big question that we want to address. And Esme, you just mentioned Marx. Marx famously said, didn't he, that philosophers have interpreted the world, but the point is to change it. And the thing that's always struck me about Angela Davis, one of the things that's always struck me about Angela Davis is that she straddles both worlds. So yes, she's a celebrated academic, celebrated for decades as an academic, but also, and perhaps more importantly, primarily, she's an activist and famously, as we've discussed already, a revolutionary. So what I'm going to ask you all in turn, first of all, Leela, what do you have to say about the challenges and opportunities that face us today? So having been part of the black movement of the 70s in Britain, um, and seeing the movement today, and as everybody has said, the difference this time is the number of, of white people on the demonstrations demanding change. The other difference is, of course, everybody's identified that it has to be structural change, that it isn't just changing small organisations, that it's a really root and branch approach to, to, ch to change that has to happen if really we are to have an equal and fair society. But having been through a movement which was was really quite successful and the the reaction of the state really was just to buy people off and we used to have a joke in race today that um the government then came into brixton into other inner city areas and just had lots and lots of projects and we used to say if you had a headache you could get a government grant for a project to do with headaches and we published an article i think around 77 which we we asked the question whose interest will the movement serve and I think that's really pertinent today. Whose interest is this movement going to serve? Um, we've already heard that at Angela's wow talk when some black women clapped at the fact that the head of the military industrial complex, I think the head of the army was a black woman. And Angela just said that isn't progress. A black woman in charge of dropping bombs on other people is not progress, even though it is one of the most senior positions in the United States. So I think we need to be clear about whether one of the responses is going to be with this so-called um, think tank that's been set up by Boris, that we just see more black representation. We just see people being given jobs in, and we want that. I mean, there's no, no question that we want it. But um, real change has really got to come for those at the bottom of society. And I think this is the task that faces political activists. That always to be mindful when you're when you're demanding that really it's the it's the people at the bottom. It's really the youth on the street who daily face police oppression. It's the people in these awful housing conditions of which Renfrew was just an example. It's the people, it, the education system. After all the strides made about black studies, what's going on in education with the amount of black black youth being put in in, in being excluded and we know that once they're excluded it's straight into a, a so-called gang so i think the task facing us all when we meet with whatever authorities are going to meet with us to discuss what our demands are and what we want that we meet, need to be mindful that it's changed really from below and really what we have to do after this black lives movement has has said what it wants get some achievements work with people from below at grassroots to really make effective change and as activists we really have to continue to build that movement that's great Leila and certainly the the work of the darkest how legacy collective the publications that you've produced will i think play an invaluable role in contributing to to building those kind of movements and that kind of struggle we're still getting more comments coming in we've got one from jasmine that says that it's not enough to just fight for reforms within a system that relies on racist divisions to survive we need to smash it completely we've got 
Janet's saying it's fantastic that a new generation of women led by black women are engaged in resistance to racism. And Alan is saying the ideas of Angela Davis are relevant and will so are so relevant at this point of significant potential change. And of course, the challenge is to turn potential change into actual lasting and radical change, isn't it? Let me turn now to Esme and ask on this big question, how can we achieve radical change? What can it look like? What should it look like? And what do we need to do to try and bring it about? Um, well, before I come on to that, Brian, I just wanted mm -hmm. to say something about um, the nature of talking about um, historical figures such as Angela yeah. Davis, even though, as we've said, she's not just a historical figure. And I think it should be obvious just how much inspiration we all take from Angela Davis. Um, but I think we also have to say this doesn't mean we can't have points of disagreement and difference. And in actual fact, that part of treating people with respect is to critically engage with what they're saying. But if there's been less critical engagement today and more admiration, I think that's because we've really concentrated on the vast areas of agreement that we have with Angela Davis that touch on the crucial questions that we face for today. And I think it's right that we do that. And I really wanna to get to the core of your question about the sort of change that we need. And I think to do that, we need to just take a moment to celebrate the Black Lives Matter in all of its international reach and resilience, because Angela Davis said recently that you can't understand the power and the character of the current movement without the background of the crisis of coronavirus and what that has exposed. And I think she's absolutely right. I think the coronavirus crisis has absolutely laid bare the structural inequalities of race and class in such a dramatic way for everyone to see. And not just that it's laid those bare, but I think you can see how the hurt, the anger, the isolation um, has built up and has really transformed into something so powerful so quickly out of what has been created from that crisis. And the power of the movement is really that it's achieved so much in so little time. You know, you think about you think about the question of the statues and the number of committees that have been formed to talk about statues or to talk about the right way to commemorate elements of empire or our racist history and the back and forwards over all of these questions, the power of the movement has dealt a blow to all of those questions because it showed how powerful direct action from below can be. And I think Leela is absolutely right in this, that we have to remember that real change comes from those movements that come from below, um, that these are the things that can force real, genuine change. And I think for those of us who are in work, who are in education or even in our communities, it has opened a window for us to really push on to challenge institutional racism wherever, wherever it is. You know, I work in the health service. We've known about institutional racism. We've read reports on it. We've seen studies on it. Now is the time we have to demand action on it. But as well as the power of the movement, I think every movement throws up debates and arguments about where next, about what our targets should be, um, about what sort of change we need, about how fundamental that change should be. And I think one of the things that is very clear, and I think Leela explained this very well as well, is that whether you're in the US or whether you're in the UK, the strategy of reform really has failed us. It has failed black people, Asian people, it has failed migrants, and it has failed all working class people. So in 2007, Angela Davis said in um, a brilliant interview that she did, she said, when the inclusion of black people into the machine of oppression is designed to make that machine work more efficiently, then it does not represent progress at all. And I think in the US, we've seen a strategy of black faces in high places that has seen an increasing number of black police chiefs, more uh, black army chiefs, more black mayors. And we've seen the ultimate, haven't we? A black president in the White House, and yet racism persists in the brutal sorts of ways that we've talked about. 
Um, and now we have a democratic presidential wannabe in Joe Biden, whose solution to the demands of Black Lives Matter seems to be that the police should be trained to shoot people in the leg instead of the heart. This is not the kind of solution that people need who are out on the streets fighting for change. And here in the UK, we have our own absolutely sickening experience of having a government with Asian politicians, Priti Patel and Rishi Sunak, shoring up the racist policies of this government, a government that despite its supposed U-turn is still charging migrant health workers and their families to use the NHS that they risk their lives for, and has shamefully buried some of its own findings around the causes of black and minority ethnic deaths from coronavirus, utterly unforgivable. And I think that the response from that in Parliament from the new leader of the Labour Party has been seriously lacking. But the response from the streets and from our movement has been huge. And I think one of the things that's happened with the coronavirus crisis is that the real class divisions in society have been laid bare for people. You know, I think about one of the phrases that we never used to use before that we use now is the notion of essential workers. It has become clear that workers, often badly paid, badly treated, often black workers and badly protected at work, are the people who are truly essential to our society, while those at the top of our society are clueless, or worse still, are steering us to disaster in the name of profit. And I think that the movement that we have needs to give inspiration to people to organise around racism. But I think the other thing is we have to think about where that movement goes because it has to, I think, deepen. It has to build roots among workers who have economic power. It has to bring the spirit of the movement into the workplaces. We get a little bit of a glimpse of this in France, and we get a little bit of a glimpse of it with the dock worker strike in America, but we need to see more of that because what we really want to see is not just another generation taking to the streets to fight against racism, Ever since there's been racism, there has been anti-racism. There have been people who have bravely fought from slavery, through segregation, through the Islamophobic struggles that we've seen in Britain. Every generation that's fought, faced racism has fought racism. But we don't want to keep fighting racism. We want a change that is actually going to fundamentally uproot it at its core. And that means we want a world that is run for need and for health and not for profit. And that is revolutionary change. And that's what Angela Davis fought for and is still fighting for and that's what our movement has to fight for and that's why um, I hope people will join us and will join us in that struggle. Brilliant, thank you very much Esme and echoing that we have a comment from Jane which says Angela's legacy and that of the movement is to fight, organise and resist while being politically informed. We've tried reforms yet we remain oppressed system change is our only path and I think that you've summed that up brilliantly Esme. So finally let me turn to you uh, Neymar and what are your final comments on this big question of how can we bring about radical and lasting change? Yeah I think what the movement has really truly shown is how deep-rooted racism is in capitalism, whether it be around the arguments of the statue decolonizing the education and so on. I think it shows it's just not a product of individuals' ignorance, but something that's structured into society, something that comes from the top of society. The ideas of the ruling class are the that, um the ruling ideas of society are the ideas of the ruling class. And you use racism as a tool to divide a rule. And I think one of my favorite Angela Davis quotes is, um, I'm no longer accepting the things I can't change. I'm changing the things I can't accept. And I think that is exactly what the movement's doing. Um, in a recent article in The Guardian, at the end, she, there's a bit where she talks about uh, something she says to her students at the end of her lecture, lecture, saying that her mother always used to explain the world in which they lived in, but simultaneously also explain that things can change and they could be a part of that change and I think now and as always we are part of that change we are changing the society which we live in and we want to get rid of all forms of oppression that people face whether that be racism sexism or homophobia and we are socialists we learn from the part the lessons of the past but always fight for a better 
um, world without oppression and exploitation. For a lasting change, we need a revolution to get rid of capitalism and all its horrors by building a broad working class movement where the vast majority takes control of the product of um, of the mass product of products um, of um, capitalism for the benefits of the many and not just a few. So. If you're not a member of the Socialist Workers' Party, do join and let's continue to struggle and change the world that we live in. Yeah. Thank you, Neymar. And thank you again to Leela and thank you to Esme. I also want to thank our backroom team. I want to thank Lewis and Nathan and Kevin for making this broadcast possible. And I want to thank you all for tuning in and for encouraging your friends to check out this broadcast. And it will be available online after we, uh, we, we're no longer live. So please do encourage your friends, your workmates, your family and so on to continue to, 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 to check it out. We've mentioned a number of books this evening. Angela Davis's Women, Race and Class Centrally. The, the Race Today Anthology. Here to Stay, Here to Fight, and also From Bobby to Babylon, the two books that have been produced by the Darkest Howe Legacy Collective, the book that Esme and I were involved in producing, Say It Loud, Marxism and the Fight Against Racism. All of these, if you haven't read these books, I would certainly encourage you to check them out. But also, there's a whole range of revolutionary literature that you can check out at Bookmarks Bookshop. It's been obviously a particularly difficult time for a small independent socialist bookshop like Bookmarks during the period of lockdown. You can help them by checking out online the uh, fantastic catalogue of literature that they have. The details are on your screen now. I would certainly encourage you to do that. Let me finish with Angela Davis's own words. As you heard earlier in this broadcast, even though she has her own health issues, even though she's in her 70s, she continues to be deeply involved in the movement. And just two days ago, in an interview to mark Juneteenth, the celebration of the emancipation of slaves in the United States, she said this about the current protests. This is an extraordinary moment. I'm just so happy that I've lived long enough to witness this moment. We should, of course, be grateful to have such great shoulders on which to stand and that she's still around to inspire us. And Esme talked about the, you know, being prepared and willing to continue to critique. And Angela Davis uses that very phrase itself, standing on the shoulders of giants. And she recognises that the point of that is to stand on the shoulders of giants like her in order to see further and to more clearly. In other words, we shouldn't simply take what people in the past have said and done and regard it as the holy grail. We have to learn from it. We have to use it to enrich the struggles that we're fighting today. And that's what we should be aiming to do. As I suggested at the start of this broadcast, the challenge that faces us now is to ensure that what Angela describes as an extraordinary moment becomes a movement for lasting change. Socialist Workers' Party is trying to build an organisation that can play its role in intervening in every struggle, in every campaign, in every community and every workplace to bring about that revolutionary transformation that we think is necessary. If you agree with us and you enjoyed this broadcast, then I would urge you to join us. And the details of how you can do that are on the screen right now. Once again, thank you for tuning in. Stay safe, stay strong, stay in the struggle.